0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. The fact that you've already anointed and blessed Peter in the preparation of this word. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we listen and as we take note of what you are saying through Peter. We ask your blessing. We pray for Peter in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. <clears throat> have poor people trouble. <laughs> As you're fully aware, we're in Advent, and we're taking this, you can take it, and you should take it as an opportunity to revive your hope in God and in the future and in his coming for humanity's sake, but also for the globe of which is in crisis. You might have general election euphoria or unhappiness, I don't know, since I'm a pessimist, the euphoric, you'll soon be miserable again anyway. <laughs> James 5, we've got three readings today and we'll be looking at all of them. And James 5 is one of them. It tells us, James, be patient therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been patient, or have they? What sort of patience is James talking about? Uh, it's not how you respond to a traffic jam. It's not that sort of patience. It's not the sort of patience you might have with your children or grandchildren. It's uh, not about don't be in such a hurry type of patience. It's something much more. James illustrates it with three examples. And last week I was in France amongst farmers, and the first example they're very clear about. It's quite interesting to be in a rural community from time to time and realize that the farmer is utterly helpless. He's dependent on the rain falling. He sows his seed and then he has to wait. And he can't hurry it and he can't dig it up to see how it's going. He has to wait. And so for for them, this passage is so clear. It might not be for us townies to realize, but there it is. The second example is the prophets, he mentions. Verse 10, take the example of suffering and patience, beloved. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And many of the prophets died for sharing the message they had. But they still believed the word they had brought, inspired by God for them to write down for us. And finally, he says about the endurance of Job. And Job in all his sufferings did not lose his faith in God, a God of love. Which is staggering in the story of Job. And thank God that book is there. Patience is here about waiting with sure and certain hope. J.B. Phillips says the hope is not the bus might come or the train might not be late. That's the sort of Uh, ordinary hope. No, the hope here is happy certainty. A happy certainty. It will come about. So James, you're right. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. That sort of patience. How do you have that sort of patience? Uh, You could be super spiritual and I meet people like this. They live in a cocoon of their own super spiritual world and pretend frankly, that everything's fine when it's actually pretty tough. And they don't tolerate doubt, those sort of people. Or the option, too, is to be a realist, like the prophets and like Job. Immerse yourself in life with all its complexities, its unresolved issues, your doubts, your puzzlements. You know, Thomas, we call Thomas the doubter because he didn't believe in the resurrection there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to check it out. You might not get the answer you want, but doubt is not the lack of faith. Doubt is exploring the complexities of life and why God doesn't seem to be delivering what we think he might be. But a realist can actually maintain their faith in a God through Jesus Christ who is faithful and true to His Word. So be a realist. Face life as it is. You have to wait. It will become clear one day. And the three examples in James are about realists waiting in their own difficult situations. So James can tell us, be patient then, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. And in the, if you read his letter, you'll see that it's in the context of people who are cheating their laborers and things going wrong. That's why he talks about the judge being at the door there. Live your life out correctly for him, even though the circumstances point the other way. Some of the prophets experienced quite difficult times. Ezekiel had to lie on his side, if I remember rightly. Hosea had to marry a prostitute. They were tough messages. They were realists nonetheless. So let's go to the Isaiah reading for today and the first four verses. I'm going to read it out loud for the sake of the recording, but you, as it's read and as you read it, how is it touching you? How are you affected by these words? That's what I'm going to ask you in a little moment what that is. Isaiah 35, 1-4. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Don't fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Okay, this is a bit of a free-for-all for my deaf ears, but what sort of feelings, emotions, triggers have occurred to you? Perhaps somebody could give me some suggestions. Really beautiful day. A beautiful day, thank you excitement and joy yep relief did i hear that right yep hope. hope if i put this picture up how does that speak to you what's that saying to you new life new life difficult circumstances life. difficult yep yep Did I hear survival? (laughs) That's a good one. One more. Determination to break through. I like that one. You see, these pictures and the prophets are giving us pictures are to stimulate our imagination. An Old Testament theologian suggested, and it's not my wording, but I find it helpful, is... The prophets were more interested in prophetic imagination rather than detailed facts about the future. They're wanting to influence your thinking and your emotions through your imagination that God gave you. Prophetic imagination. Do you allow your imagination to engage with God's word or are you merely reading it as Samsung's unwritten, un- un- unread, sorry, instructions on how to operate your phone? Mm. Dull stuff. And you don't bother, do you? And then you only go and look at it and see how do you make that particular button do what you want it to do? You might look at that. For facts, but it's not imaginative stuff. So let's go back to our text in Isaiah 34 1 4. The first few lines are clearly speaking about God wanting to restore creation. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, recognized creation is waiting on tiptoe for that day. So for the climate change issues, and we need to be dealing with climate change issues, not leaving it to the end times. We need to be getting on with that but we can have hope that one day God will step in and restore creation. But then the verses go on to speak of people in verses 3 and the beginning of (laughs) 4. I hope you recognize yourself there. People with weak hands. Oh, life is tough. Trembling knees. (laughs) I had to use this in French and it talked about... Knees, not just knees, but flapping around. (laughs) It's really quite dramatic in French. But anyway, in English we like to be a bit less emotional. Okay? But here we are in a situation. Are your knees weak? Are you struggling with life? Well, this is what the prophet is speaking to us, to you, in that circumstances. Those who are of a fearful heart. First World War, Second World War, I was interested to find in one of my relative's writings, reading, Though War Should Rise, I Will Not Fear, from the psalm written in the diary for that time of declaration of war. You see, there are difficult times in life, and God speaks through the prophet, touching our imagination, not with details of it'll be all right in the end, but actually a picture to touch us more deeply realists don't wonder uh, do, realists do worry and they do wonder what things are going to, how things are going to go, work out realists are weak at the knees sometimes their hands are feeble and they are fearful about what's going to happen their heart is beating but the prophetic imagination is meant to touch and deepen our relationship with god So I want to encourage you today to use God's given given gift uh, of imagination and allow the prophetic scriptures not just to touch your intellect, but to stimulate your imagination. There is factual content in here. I will come and save you is a factual piece of information. You know, Christians often feel that we're the ones who've been waiting the only ones who've been waiting but here we have in this text I will come so be patient you see the Jews of old before the time of Jesus were waiting Simeon in the temple was waiting Anna was there waiting they saw the fulfillment but only the beginning of the fulfillment because they didn't know what was going to happen next but they were waiting for the day when the Messiah would come. The shepherds in the field, you know, we, we, we think they're just ordinary. No, come on, they knew they were Jewish people with a messianic hope, a hope of a coming saviour. And the rotten Romans were making life difficult. And when the angel comes, let's go and see what's happened. And they went back with joy So, we're not the first to be waiting. People have been waiting throughout the scriptural times. Handel, you know, was given a manuscript by a vicar, actually, of texts from mostly, a lot of them, from Isaiah. Most of the book of Revelation, actually, is quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted New Testament in the New Testament. Isaiah is the most quoted book in the Bible because it's touched that prophetic imagination that triggers things and links with what Jesus did and what will be. But Handel was granted this gift of text from the Bible. And when he read it, his imagination was stimulated and he wrote that music that still inspires us today, giving something extra to those wonderful words of Scripture. So theater, arts, music, poetry, all these things touch the imagination in ways and Christians are involved in it and can be. But is Isaiah being ridiculous when he announces, he will come and save you? As Christians, we know that's what God has done in coming the coming of Jesus Christ. But Isaiah, who's no idea of that about to happen, is he being realistic? in saying God's inspired me to write for you and for generations to come, he will come and save you. Well, he knew that already. The Exodus story is absolutely paramount to all of our scriptures. Because it says in the story, doesn't it? God says, I see the suffering of my people and I will come down and I will rescue them. He doesn't come down in the way in which we know in Christ and the birth of the baby in in Bethlehem, but he knew that God does come and attend to his people. So it wasn't a new idea for him. You see, he's conveying a fact that he knows in the character of God, I will come and save you. So the scriptures are piling up more and more confidence for us as the generations go by that our imaginative Constructs that we can get from these words will help us. Let's move on in Isaiah. He will come and save you. That's the end of verse 4. And it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. But if you live in the Judean desert which is bone dry and horrible, just brown sand and rocks and nothing there, you'll be excited by that. I know your back garden's growing reeds and rushes because the amount of rain that's fallen, okay? So there's a bit of humor here, isn't there? Jackals will have to move out and reeds and rushes. We have to interpret scripture for our context but hear it in its original context and let it speak to you. The other reading that's set for today is Matthew 11. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, are you the one who's to come? I'm coming to save you. Are you the one who is to come? (laughs) He's saying, come on, is Isaiah 35 happening? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see, you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Well, the poor have good news preached to them links, doesn't it, to Jesus' manifesto. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, that one, and the good news is proclaimed, and that one, that's Isaiah as well. But here we just compare Isaiah 35 with that Matthew 11 and the blind are receiving their sight. Jesus didn't do miracles just because he wanted to heal people. He did it because that's what God's kingdom is like. And John, do you want to know, am I the Messiah really? Well, I'm fulfilling what you know well in your scriptures. So prophetic imagination does work. Because when you start to see things happening, you can say, this is the hand of God. At work amongst us. But if you continue in Matthew 11, notice that Jesus is asking them, What did your imagination do with the text of the scriptures and the coming of John the Baptist, who was the most important revival prophet that there has been? Thousands journeyed their way to the Jordan to hear him preach blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me says Jesus that's an interesting talk I'll try and avoid that I'll get another sermon as they went away Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John what did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind what then did you go out to see someone dressed in soft robes Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it's written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. You see, Jesus in the context of the scriptures, and we Christians need to be similarly infused about the scriptures, is asking them, what did your imagination tell you from the scriptures about the coming of the Lord and the preparing of the way? Because that's what John the Baptist's message was. And Jesus is saying, eventually, doesn't he, elsewhere, not in this particular text that's on the screen, he's saying, who did you expect? They were waiting for Elijah. And a man dressed like him comes. Not a chap in royal palaces, not the king of Israel. Oh, yes, Jesus, we've got it. John the Baptist is the one promised the return of the prophet Elijah. Your imagination needed to be refocused. So, are we using our imagination Jesus ends this with a reference to the way. Isaiah 35, 8 to 10 again. Let's continue with our reading in Isaiah. A highway shall be there. That's repeated several times in the book of Isaiah. And the interesting thing is that Jesus then says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's speaking to people who know and whose imagination's already been touched by these scriptures, that God's going to prepare a way for us to walk in. I'll write my law on their hearts, and they shall walk in my ways. And this highway is being prepared by John, and now here is Jesus fulfilling it by saying, I am the way. That's why the Sadducees were so angry with Jesus. He keeps applying scripture to himself very annoying because we don't think he's the Messiah we better get rid of him but we can see that Jesus is saying here I am that way the unclean shall not travel on it ah there's some exclusions let your imagination think it shall be for God's people again let your imagination think who are these, what's this differentiation? James said the judge is standing at the door. There's an element of fearfulness. Ooh. If you allow your imagination to work on that James passage, and here there's also God's people will be on it. I love the next bit. No traveler, not even fool, shall go astray. I always feel for that unfortunate person, and I hope I don't ever have that experience, of going the wrong way down a motorway. But it does happen, doesn't it? People get confused by the signs, and whoops. And because they're driving on the wrong way, it's very serious, is it not? Not even fools are going to do that on this highway. You're not going to get lost. You won't need satnav. And anyway, satnav will get you lost, OK? This is the wonderful news. Lions, I know there are no lions roaming around the streets of Walderslade. However, in Jesus' day, lions, uh, sorry, in Isaiah's day, lions were a dangerous issue. Yeah, that big truck that the chap's gone to sleep and he's going to crush the people on the motorway. That won't happen. Your imagination begins to work. Ah, It doesn't say there's no death in this passage, but that's what's being implied if you allow your imagination to to get to work. No hazards, no death. Imagination tells us more than the mere facts. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. If ever you want to know, did people reading the scriptures believe in life after death, there are so many scriptures that if you allow your imagination, it doesn't say so, but is clearly implied by the picture. It's interesting that there's often repetitions in scripture, and we've got the ransomed of the Lord and the redeemed being mentioned, literally side by side. There's a subtle difference between redemption and ransoming. It's an interesting one. You talk about redeeming a picture, you know, when those old pictures have all got damaged and the Arts uh, Council spends a lot of money cleaning it up, and they've redeemed the picture. They made it look like, or nearly like, what it was originally. And the idea of redemption was like the story of Ruth. She goes to her redeemer, her relative, who restores the state of her no longer being in poverty and homeless. she's redeemed by the redeemer who becomes her husband of course and is in the genealogy of Jesus as an illustration for redemption for us. But ransomed implies a cost and there's a cost. There was a cost you know to relieving the Jews in the exodus from Pharaoh. That was the death of the firstborn. The Egyptian firstborn. God has redeemed us and ransomed us with a cost by the death of the firstborn son of Mary. So we are seeing in these scriptures that if our imagination is touched, our hope can deepen, if you allow it. Hope in scripture, as I've said before, is about certainty. Is this just like the secular visualization technique? And it's used with cancer patients. Be positive about your situation. Don't just consider always your dying of cancer, but try to be positive. You'll have a better life while it lasts. You know, all of us are terminally ill, I have to say, so, uh, you know, bear in mind, we're in company with everybody else. But is it merely visualization technique? That's good, that's using your imagination to help you live a better life. Or is it that now discredited but still much used power of positive thinking? Just as you will be the CEO of a large company and you'll get there. <laughs> the reality is you <laughs> might, but it's unlikely. Is it that? No, this prophetic imagination's much more than that. God doesn't want you just to think about self fulfilment, because that's what those two techniques are about self fulfilment they're good in their place what does God wants through his scriptures to encourage us is to deepen our relationship with him and to say okay I have no trust in Boris Johnson that's fine but I do trust Jesus and I follow him and I do believe that ultimately whatever path and however difficult that path is going to be to my life's end on this in this world God is is good and is going to lead and is my redeemer and the one who's ransomed me. Isaiah 35, I'm told by my commentaries by clever people that I, can't, I find Isaiah very difficult to read, I have to say. That Isaiah 34 and 35 is like a bookmark in the book of Isaiah. And in those two chapters, you'll find themes that are in the rest of the book, beginning and the remainder of the book. And so these themes that are in the text that we've just looked at this morning are amplified to touch our imagination even further in the later chapters. We have a very good example in Abraham in the scriptures. Abraham never saw the outcome of the promises that God made. But his prophetic imagination was asked to go into full swing. Abraham was told, look at the stars and try to count them. That'll be the number of your descendants. Or your descendants will be as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. And yet God factually tells him, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Will, will, will. It's all in the future. So that... And here's God's purpose. You will be a blessing. You will be a blessing. So God wants to touch your imagination even today so that you will be a blessing to the people around you. A light shining in darkness, to use another image. Someone who touches the lives of others because you have that deep, steadfast hope that in your confusion, your tears, your fears, your weak knees, your... No, sorry, wobbly knees and weak hands you can steer a path through the difficulties of life because your imagination touched by the scriptures that God has given us have given you hope that can't be shaken Heavenly Father we thank you for the prophets you sent who opened up for us your word to encourage us in the complexities of life. Give us grace in the world in which we live to be a blessing to others because we are similarly touched by your inspiring word. Amen.